The following is Voices of Experience radio show and podcast. No promotional fees are paid by authors or other guests who appear on the show. If you have comments or suggestions, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. Welcome to Voices of Experience on Kixie AM 880, KKNW 1150 AM, and of course my podcast as well. My name is Paul Casey, your host, and just want to get this in at the beginning of the show because at the end we play the uh, timeless classics, at least we are today, not the one-hit wonder. But I do want to let people know listening to the podcast and listening to the KKNW version of the show, the song will start, but we only get into maybe 35 seconds of it, and then we have to cut it off. And that's because of copyright issues. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just kind of the way it is. So I just want to alert people because sometimes I'll hear a song cut off. And I'll go, darn it, why are you doing that? But you're probably still going, darn it, if you really like the song. Why are you doing that? But uh, that's why we're doing that. <laughs> now you know why. <laughs> now you know why. So let's get to the program today. Uh, Eric and Eric. Yeah. Hi to both of you. Hello. Good afternoon. So what did you think of the uh, game last night? Uh, you know, um, all star. Anecdotally, I didn't see it. I've heard from people various things of uh, it's very cool that it was here in Seattle. They had a great time. Uh, they enjoyed the weather was spectacular. Um, but if you're not a huge baseball fan, it could be a snoozer. I would imagine. You know, it's just got. To be, but if you're a baseball fan, it's sort of like a must go. It's like the Olympics. Yeah, I ended up going at the very last moment, and I'd say the last moment. Sunday, I watched the Mariners, and they just took another game from Houston, took seven out of nine now, going into the All-Star break, so I'm jazzed up. So I went and bought a couple tickets for the game late. I paid for it. Was it worth it? Eh, whatever. I'm going to say it's one of those, in 100 years from now, it won't matter either way. There you go. So. And you got to see a little bit of history. Yes. With the National League. That's right. They, yep. I think it was the first time they won in 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's my third All-Star game. I was, that was one of the other reasons. I did go to the 79 All-Star game. I went to the 2001 All-Star game in Seattle, both those. And that kind of pushed me for the third one at the last moment. You also got to see, uh, I'm I'm spacing on the gentleman's name from Colorado Rockies, who who in the eighth scored the two runs, had a home run. Right. uh, Brought the guy in from, uh, on base. And, and he was, he's 32. Never been in the All-Stars. First time there. He does this. Right. And, he, and prior to the, or after the game, he said, I had a co-player uh, uh, that's on the team that said, you're going to go there and you're going to make the difference to the game and you're going to be MVP. And he was. Wow. Uh, I don't I'm know his name either. Tell you, you look truth. up that, Eric? We'll, look, we'll get yeah. that for you. But I saw some of it because I didn't hear that at the game. And when I got home, I didn't watch, you know, the whole game yeah. again. But uh, anyhow. Interesting story that someone does that. The a lot city felt good that n- last night, didn't it? Oh, definitely. Didn't it feel good being downtown? And- definitely. After all we've been through, mm-hmm. I think it was really a nice coming out party for the city in many ways. So it, we needed that shot in the arm. And certainly 100%. everybody who I did watch parts of it, the beginning of it coming into Seattle, were just saying how good the city looked, how warm the reception's been, and how much they enjoyed it. And I don't think they can exaggerate that too much. I think they yeah. genuinely mentioned that for a reason, and I think they felt good about their visit. I think the city yeah. handled it very well. We were at an event down there in Pioneer Square, and it was great to see the crowds. 
this woman was jogging across, and we were looking for the place on our phones. We look like total tourists, you know. You walk and look at a map. Sure. Uh, and we were doing that, and she stopped jogging. You know, so she's local. She comes over, and she goes, can I help you? Thinking we're tourists. I oh. thought that was pretty cool. Oh, very <laughs> nice. Right, the go. Seattle way, huh? The Seattle way. Speaking of Seattle, my first interview today is going to be with a David Williams. And he just wrote a book about William Boeing. And the mm. book is called The William, William Boeing Story. I really think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, I won't go into much detail because I'll give a longer introduction in just a few moments because it comes on. So we're going to get to that. And then you have a spotlight today, Eric. And, yes, uh, with Lori, Lori Hardy. Hardy. And mm-hmm. we're going to talk about her podcast, which really focuses on your second chapter in life. What, you know, what, what would you like to do, say, north of 50, if you wanted to change your direction? And so she talks to me a little of overcome hardship, people that have just made 180s in their life and succeeded beyond their wildest dreams. So it's very inspirational. Look forward to that. I have pollster uh, Stuart Elway back today. Some shakeup in the expected gubernatorial race occurred in the last week, mm-hmm. and that is Dave Reichert had entered the race. I don't didn't want to get into too much detail right now on this, but I did want to talk to Stu about what he thought about how this is going to change what we expected, and certainly it's it's going to do that. So we'll get to that uh, in a few moments after the uh, interview with Dave Williams. Uh, Myths and reality today for chiropractic care with Dr. Dan DeLucci. And I see a chiropractor. I think you've told me you have mm-hmm. too. Have you, um, Eric, do you go to one? I, I've been a couple times. I, I, I'm not a regular, but, uh, okay. you know, occasionally. So... I felt that it's always good to talk to someone who, because there's, I, I think, some myths out there about it. I'll just keep it at that, and we'll yes. hit that a little later in the show. Not a big, long segment, though. The Timeless Classic for today. This song was number one for two weeks in 1973, and some of the lyrics may give it away. Mm. Trying to become a superstar, but he didn't get far. There you go. You got it? You have it? I, no, oh, yeah. I need some time. Eric's got it for sure. This I is one that. of those all-time classics, and, I, and I'm surprised that it wasn't number one longer than two weeks. I agree. Yeah. I agree. It really hit at the right time. It felt right, and you're right. It's kind of that song you think would have lasted longer, but I think it, it's still t- standing the test of time. Absolutely. It, it's still yep. being uh, uh, revered by many. So that's uh, coming up to, uh, at the end of the show. So let's see. What else? We're not giving any tickets away today, unfortunately, but we will be next week for the Tacoma Rainiers. Awesome. What about Voices of History today? Voices of History? Oh, yeah, that's coming up in just a few moments. This is going to be actually one. So we'll get to that uh, today. And yes, Voices of History. Thanks for that. I almost left that out. All right. So um, let's get on with the uh, show and uh, we'll be back in just a moment. So David Williams, I caught up with him about a week ago, and he is the author of the William Boeing story, A Gift of Flight. Some of the insights David Williams uncovered about Bill Boeing, he did not create the company company for money. He already had a lot of money. And this is the first time the Boeing family gave an author unprecedented access to his archives. So um, David 
was an individual who is now executive director of the Hydroplane and Race Boat Museum in Kent. He has written 10 books, eight of them about hydroplane racing. So back to the book about William Boeing. It is full of bootleggers, kidnappers, and political uh, run at his early aviation. Mm-hmm. So um, let's start right there with the interview with uh, uh, Mr. David Williams. Now, Dave, the family of Bill Boeing allowed you essentially unfettered access to boxes of material that would shed light on this man. question is, why did they choose you? (laughs) I often wonder that myself. It was a combination of the right person at the right time. Neither Bill Sr., the founder of the company, or his son, Bill Jr., were very open to the public spotlight. They tried to stay private, Um, and that has a lot to do with sort of the run-in that Bill Sr. had with Franklin Roosevelt back during the Depression era. Grandchildren of Bill Sr. are the ones that are alive today. They felt um, that it was time for his father's, or for their grandfather's story to be told. So they were looking. Then at the same time, I had worked closely with the family, essentially kind of a sports action biography of a man named Miroslav Slovak. We knew him in Seattle as Myra Slovak. He drove hydroplanes. He drove the Miss Wahoo for Bill Boeing. And while researching that book, I arranged a family reunion, if you will, of all the Boeing grandkids and and cousins. And we all got together and shared a lunch and told stories about Myra Slovak. During that meeting, people began to look at the idea of maybe doing something about the founder of the company as well, about Bill Sr. They thought you'd be fair. Yes, they thought it would be fair. How long did it take you to research and write this book? The book project itself was a four-year project. Quite a project. Were there like uh, thousands of, not thousands of boxes, but a lot of boxes that were saved over the years? A lot of Bill's stuff was kind of folded in a trifold and kept in bank safety deposit boxes. So what did you uncover about Bill Boeing Sr. that we might not have known about before? Well, quite a lot. Uh, From the the negative side, or, or you may consider it negative at the time, Bill lived through the era of prohibition, and Bill was not a supporter of prohibition. Back then, the, the world seemed divided between wets and dries. The wets wanted to drink, and the dries wanted to outlaw um, alcohol. Um, and Bill was definitely a wet, and he, he fought politically to overthrow prohibition, but he also didn't pay much attention to prohibition um, and, and uh, entertained and had parties and served alcohol and actually got involved in at least two run-ins with the, uh, the federal agents over prohibition. They declined to prosecute in one case, and he became a witness against a major bootlegger. And he was not terribly proud of that. He didn't want to be a witness, but he also didn't want to serve time for violating the Volstead Act. So that may not be viewed positively by people today. As far as things that we didn't know about Bill, the one thing that most people are surprised about, traditional Boeing story, is that he left the company in 1934 and he never looked back. When in fact, he did return to the company um, and he returned to the company during World War II, and he worked for four years, not drawing a salary, not owning a share of stock, not making a penny off of it, but working during the war years to make sure that the planes that bore his name, you know, the B-17, uh, the, the Boeing B-17 and the Boeing B-29, that those were all the best, highest quality planes that could be built. I read something that he got his inspiration from the Alaska-Yukon Pacific Exposition in 1909. Yeah, partially. Opened in 1909, and the very first day it was open. 
there was a man named John Mars that had a, a powered dirigible. It was like a, a big balloon, and it had a propeller on one end. And that was the first powered manned flight that Bill had ever witnessed. Later that year, he went down to a, an air show in Los Angeles that was the first international air show in the U.S. And there he saw some real airplanes, some airplanes with propellers and wings and passengers. And that's where he fell in love with the idea of, of airplanes. Something that most people don't realize is that Bill did not make his money with airplanes. Bill was uh, very successful in mining and logging. When he moved to Seattle in 1908, he was already the wealthiest person in King County, and he hadn't even seen an airplane. He only began to dabble with airplanes as a hobby after he was already quite wealthy. Sort of, if, if you will, like, uh, say, Jeff Bezos, who made his money um, at Amazon and then decides to play with spacecraft. You know, Bezos in the future may be remembered as someone who's very involved in, uh, in space travel, but we know he certainly didn't make his money that way. Same thing with Bill. Bill made his money in, in mining and timber. Wasn't the first plane that he built a seaplane? Yeah, the first several planes that he built were seaplanes. But it makes a little bit of sense when you think about the, the era. Back then, there were no airports. So you either took off from a pasture or you put pontoons on the plane and you, you took off from the water. And frankly, there were more places where there was water to land on and take off from than there were unfenced pastures that were big enough to land an airplane. You know, the Wright brothers started with a plane taking off from sand dunes near the ocean. But once you came inland, once you got around cities and towns, it was awfully hard to find a place that um, that was close to town, that was big enough to land a plane. But of course, all, not all, but lots of major cities grew up around water. So having a seaplane allowed you to operate from a city, from a municipality where there were people, um, and not have to find some big open stretch of empty field that was usually way outside of town. Didn't he get a huge order in World War One by from the U.S. Navy to build 50 planes? And were those seaplanes? They were seaplanes. It, it was an order from the U.S. Navy to build trainers. And a couple of things, when World War One started, no one knew it was called World War One at the time. It was all the Great War uh, in Europe. People talked about the Great War. It didn't become World War II until the second one started. Bill built a plane that he wanted to use as a trainer, and he sent two copies of it to Pensacola, Florida for the Navy to test. Uh, he was very proud of the planes because they were very stable, very easy to fly. Bill thought they would make perfect trainers. And the Navy you know, telegrammed the back and said, great plane, sorry, we can't buy any. And Bill responded with, why? What's, what's wrong? It's a great plane. And the, the Navy said, well, we've put our best pilots in them, and we've tried to get those pilots to get the planes to spin out of control. They, they won't spin, so we can't buy any. And Bill again was, well, why? I thought having a trainer that wouldn't spin would be a good thing. And the Navy finally responded saying, well, no, we need to teach our pilots how to recover from a spin. And if we train them to fly in planes that are impossible to spin, they will never have that experience. They won't know what causes a spin, and they won't know how to recover from the spin. So in order to, to finalize the sale, Bill actually had to have his engineers rebalance the plane so it would spin easily, and then the Navy would buy them so they could use the trained pilots how to spin and how to recover. Boy, that logic doesn't make sense, but I don't know. I guess I'm not uh, in the U.S. Navy or something like that. But anyhow, it worked out for him. So It did work out. It yeah, worked out great. Yeah, whatever the, the case was. And also, didn't he make a bid? Because then we're talking airmail was getting started. Yes. And didn't he get involved in that as well? 
Yes, airmail came along a little bit later in the late 20s. At the end of World War One, there were a lot of big Liberty, big V-12 Liberty engines left over from the war that hadn't gone into to planes for the war. The U.S. mail department asked for bids on mail planes, but insisted that you had to use this Liberty engine, which was a water-cooled V-12 engine. Bill didn't think it made sense to carry around a radiator and water. So Bill found an air-cooled engine called a Pratt Whitney Hornet, or, or Wasp rather, and put these air-cooled engines in his airplane. And that allowed him to bid much lower on the airmail. As he said at the time, I can bid lower because I'm just carrying letters. I'm not carrying water and radiators. So he underbid his competition by quite a bit. And he got the route from Chicago to San Francisco. And at that time, Passenger travel was almost unheard of, and the only passenger travel that you could find in airplanes would be by hitching a ride on a mail plane. Well, with Bill's lighter planes, he was able to offer one or two spots on each one of his planes, and that's sort of how the the airline business grew. It grew as sort of a an offshoot of air mail. We don't think of it that way anymore, but that's how it started. Didn't in like um, 1934, the United States government, it sounds like he's getting very yeah. successful now, but they accused Bill Boeing Sr. of monopolistic practices. Well, he did have a run-in with the, the U.S. Senate, with Hugo Black, and with Franklin Roosevelt in 1934. And we used the, the phrase monopolistic, and that's what a lot of the textbooks say, because it's easier to explain. But that isn't really what had happened with Bill. Franklin Roosevelt was not the trust buster. It was Theodore Roosevelt was the trust buster who broke up monopolies. Franklin Roosevelt was really just angry that coming out of the depression that there were people that were incredibly wealthy and people that were poor and the main problem that roosevelt had with boeing was that his company was making too much money and he felt that he was making money off airmail and military contracts so they didn't use an antitrust law what they did is they used a law that said no company could own airmail delivery and bid on military contracts. So those three things caused the board of directors to have to to break the company up into three separate companies. The airmail company that Boeing had founded called Boeing Air Transport, that became United Airlines. The uh, manufacturing arm of the company that made airplanes kept the name Boeing, and the manufacturing arm of the company that made um, engines and propellers became United Technologies. So those are still three great big giants in the industry, you know, United Technologies, United Airlines, and Boeing. But at one time, they were all the same company. No, it turns out maybe that was a good thing that happened then. It was a, perhaps a good thing. It got Bill very angry. He quit the company. Well, at least, you know, Franklin Roosevelt ended Prohibition so we could go have some drinks and that's right. you know, so he could go calm have, himself down he a little could bit. Go have a, that's exactly right. Uh, one of the things, however that became very ironic is when World War II started and the U.S. military needed 11,000 B-17s eventually, Boeing wasn't big enough to handle that order. And the U.S. military didn't want one company in, you know, on the West Coast making all those bombers because they would be too vulnerable to an attack. So the government broke Boeing up in 1934 and then in 1941, when they wanted a bunch of airplanes, they had to take the Boeing B-17 and divide it between several manufacturers all over the country. 
in order to get it built. If this isn't enough, did I also read that he got involved with uh, horse breeding? When he left the airplane business, he did get quite involved with horse racing and horse breeding. That was a passion of his from early in life. If you start to research Bill Boeing and go back in old newspapers, the first mentions you ever find of his name in a newspaper are as his accomplishments um, as a horseman. In 1934, he got very involved in horse racing. He even had a horse in the Kentucky Derby. It got third place and didn't win. But then after he retired later in life, he bought a farm up sort of in the Fall City area, and he got involved in cattle breeding. So he, he was a man that had a lot of interest, mining, lumber, airplanes, racehorses, and cattle breeding. He did it. He did it all. Well, he certainly did, didn't he? Uh, that was Dave Williams, and uh, thank you for that interview. And uh, he thinks that Boeing, I'm talking about uh, Mr. Bill Boeing, would be furious at the company that bears his name today. Mm. He did not build Boeing for the money. Uh, he did not build and motivated by shareholder value. And uh, he was motivated by trying to make the best product. So that was his assessment after going through all his right. archives. And he came up with that uh, assessment that, again, he would not be happy with the developments of Boeing right mm. now. And uh, he said, we look back and think of Bill Boeing as an airplane guy, but as he said in the interview, he had the beginning in timber. He was a logger, a miner, a real estate developer, a yachtsman, and just much more. He just did many different things. He... Uh, Williams says that if history repeats itself in about 50 years, people will think, for example, he makes this uh, analogy to Jeff Bezos we're thinking about today, and to keep this in perspective, that he will be known as a pioneer in commercial spaceflight when people look back, and they probably won't even recall his name as the starter of Amazon. Mm. And it's kind of like, did you know all of that about Bill Boeing? Right, no. He didn't make money at all in that. It was his hobby. Yeah. Crazy. That's kind of what Jeff Bezos is doing now. It's not Amazon. That's a hobby. And he doesn't care about that, making money there, per se. He's putting everything into it because this is his uh, real jewel of what he wants to accomplish in life more. And I started thinking about Bill Gates, the same. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Bill Gates may—I'll bet there's a percentage of people with all his work in Africa and other countries have heard of the Bill— Gates and Melinda Gates Foundation, they don't know nothing about him starting Amazon, or excuse me, Microsoft. Yeah. That's what I kind of took out of that interview. I thought that was really a fascinating part of that. And um, he concluded by saying his strong affection, his assessment, excuse me, of um, Bill Boeing, he had a strong affection for the man the more he learned about him and delved into it. He didn't know much about him, but he said he really felt quite engaged and, say, affectionate towards him. And he also said he was much cooler than he thought he was. <laughs> so that was uh, right. the William Boeing story, Gift of Flight. What a great and I think it was uh, a really interesting to talk to that man. Great segment. Yes, and again, he's, uh, you know, the head of the Museum of Hydroplanes down in Kent. I've never been down to it, but I'm going to said I, I want to go down and see that and uh, see what he's doing down there. So, because uh, we have an incredible history of the Gold Cup and yes. the beginnings of there. And what prompted me to do this interview, I was at the Rotary Club. He talked about that only, about the, how hydroplane racing got started here. And there were so many things in that. I went, what? Really? 
the Gold Cup when it started in the early 50s and how that led to so much of this community, I had no idea. How about a field trip, uh, a, a Voices of Experience field trip down there to the museum? Maybe we could even broadcast from there. Ooh. Let's think about that. We'll take that I off I like air. that. Live. That's a good idea. That's, I've always wanted to go there. Never been there. I'm Eric, like, would you join us? I mean, Eric Ryder. <laughs> I definitely would if I didn't have you, to be here running the board. You yeah. would. You have <laughs> to be doing it here. here. <laughs> like, All right. Let's, let's, let's uh, look think into that. about that. All right. Voices of History coming up in just a moment. When a flock of geese knocked out two engines on U.S. Airways Flight 1549 right after takeoff from LaGuardia Airport, who would you want in the cockpit? Captain Sully or a pilot on their maiden flight? If Captain Sully was your choice, then experience is important to you. And that's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. A variety of topics are explored, including local and national public affairs, self-employment, travel, lifestyles, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. Voices of History for July 12th, 2023. That's the day we're doing this. And I'm just going to do two today. And one's going to be extremely brief. But what they have in common is they both happened today some years ago. So let's start with the uh, first one, and that is on July 12, 1957, President Dwight D. Eisenhower becomes the first president to ride in a helicopter. Didn't exist before Hmm. then. So uh, now this one is the second one today, and I think... uh, Was that Marine One back then? Was it called that? I have no idea. Okay. Does that, isn't it currently called Marine yes. One, the uh, yes. presidential helicopter? Yes, yep. that's right. But whether it was then, I don't know. From what I understand, that he just felt that driving through streets of Washington, D.C. to go to meetings or go up you know, a little bit north of Maryland or something, it's safer to be in a helicopter. I think that's how it got its start. <laughs> Faster, too. <laughs> Faster, too. Yeah. I'd like to ride in Marine One. Oh, man. Wouldn't Same. That'd be fun. So here's another one. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this, and not if you have when I get into it a little bit. But this happened uh, at the end of the 1970s. We were looking at the age of disco. It was kind of declining then. Mm-hmm. And what they submit, when I say they, I don't know who, okay. per se. But they say that this really is what kind of ended disco. And it occurred July 12, 1979, 44 years ago today. I Check my math again. I've, I'm not doing too well in that department lately, but it's 44 years ago today. Yeah. I did it three times to make sure. <laughs> so I'm going to also kind of describe this, and maybe we do a segment every week on this, is what could possibly go wrong, okay, with this promotion that occurred. <laughs> All right, some background. Steve Gall, a DJ from WDAYFM, had recently joined WLUP. FM station. The reason Gall at WDAY, D-A-Y, had just switched formats to disco. Now Steve hated 
disco. <laughs> and that's the major reason he went cross town to WLUP. Had a ring in that one. Remember WKRP? Uh-huh. Cincinnati? Yeah, sure. Let Les Nesman and Johnny <laughs> Fever. Anyhow, it wasn't there. I, I detracted from this story. So Gall approached the Chicago White Sox with the idea of boosting attendance at a White Sox game. The brass at the White Sox was intrigued with anything that could boost attendance because okay. the White Sox were not doing well. They averaged like 15,000 fans a game. So they came up with disco. <laughs> I can't do this. Disco Demolition Night at Chicago's Kaminsky Park. Okay. If, if fans brought a, a disco record to the game, they would get into the game for 98 cents. Okay. On top of that, as an added incentive, it's going to be 10-cent beer night. Oh, man. Okay. Now, picture Chicago on July 12th when the humidity is at 95% and so is the temperature. <laughs> and there's a double header. Oh, my goodness. Again, that would go back to what could possibly go what wrong. Go I'd wrong. like to be in that room pitching that. Yeah, this can't miss. Cheap, so, beer, right. cheap beer and sports fans. What could go wrong? Yeah. So then, then they said the records would well, be plus added. demolition. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's an important part of this. That's right. <laughs> and they would be blown up in a dumpster full of disco records between games. Okay? Again, I mentioned it was a, a doubleheader. The front office projected that there would be about 5,000 people would probably show up at this event because of this special promotion. What turned out, over 40,000 fans showed up, (laughs) and an additional 40,000 fans showed up outside, and they were shut out. They couldn't get in. So the promotion worked. They got their fans. Now, for some reason, though, when the fans came into the game with their records, there wasn't the staff there to take the record, so they brought them to their seats. So they had this drinking 10-cent beers. Remember, watching a very slow game. Maybe it was as slow as last night. I don't know. And uh, at the end of the first game, all of a sudden, thousands of people started storming the field. And they were lighting fires in the grass. They blew up the dumpster. They were going up on flagpoles. They were, uh, as I say, bonfires. They were... Again, doing this, and the police were there, and it was just not a value-run <laughs> record. I could imagine Monday morning in, at the Chicago White Sox front office what that was like. Um, now, the second game was was forfeited. They lost it. They forfeited to the Detroit Tigers. And um, some people argue, again, where I started, that arguably they say this was where the popularity of disco ended in the United States. Mm. If you're interested in more, <laughs> all you need to do is YouTube Kaminsky Park Riot, and you can see this. It is just incredible. I'm, now, okay, check have out. you guys heard of this? I have. You yeah. have. I, I've heard of it, but I didn't know half of the details. That's great. Right. That's awesome. <laughs> so there you have, have a disco demolition night at Kaminsky Park, July 12th. 1979. Maybe we should. I'll go to Michael sure. Thompson and see if he wants to try this in Tacoma. <laughs> what could go wrong, a, Michael? It wasn't a single Andy Gibb record left in the town of no. Chicago. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> so there you go. That Casey was, of the uh, Sunshine Band. Nowhere to be seen. <laughs> nowhere to be seen. <laughs> Voices of history for today. Great job, Paul. That's awesome. All right. That was fun. So 
On a more serious note, we come back in Stu Elway in just a moment. We're going to talk about uh, a little shakeup in the governor's race. Now, Stu Elway, uh, this is a recording I had with him just earlier in the week, and he's been analyzing public opinion since 1975 and directing research projects across the country for large and small businesses. In 2016, Stu was rated by 538 Holster, and that's the gold standard of rating. Got an A-plus with his uh, uh, company. So that just shows how high esteem he's held. That's why I always like to go to him and talk about things that are occurring. So here we go. Dave Reichert uh, announced last week that he's going to run for governor. I believe that uh, two people are affected the most. Well, first was Raul Garcia, which I was hoping to interview, but he dropped out. Right. And he's that uh, guy from, uh, guy, he's, uh, is he an orthodontist or he's a visit or a doctor of some sort I'm from not, Yakima? I believe he's a doctor. I'm not, I can't remember. Yeah, I don't know exactly what that is. And then I believe the one that was most affected. No, let me let's get to the interview and I'll give that opinion afterwards. So this is the uh, discussion I had with um, Stu Elway. This is a 2000 election. Republicans have averaged 44 percent of the primary vote. Democrats, 53%. Simi Bird, the other Republican candidate, getting 10%. So let's say he gets a little bit more and Reichert gets the rest. That puts Reichert in 30 to 35% of the vote in the primary, which is certainly going to get him through. The interesting things on the on the Democrat side, there's three candidates over there. And Mullet was expected to get a substantial support from business and other traditionally Republican constituencies, but Reichert's entrance into that race expected to keep the Republican supporters at home, and it really cuts off the path that Mullet had to get through. Yeah, so this may have hurt him more than anybody. Probably. But you look at that side, too. Look at that same average over the last 20 years. In the primary, Democrat candidates have averaged a total of 53% of the vote. The one poll we have, Ferguson had 25%. Uh, in the in the poll, leading France and uh, Mullet, both in single digits. So take the average of 53, give Ferguson that 25, that leaves 28% of the Democrat vote left, which means that a challenger would have to get virtually all of that to get by Ferguson in the primary or win some Republican voters, which is less likely now that a, you know a named candidate, the Riker, is on the Republican side. Yeah, it but, seems like uh, Raul Garcia heeded those uh, words and uh, dropped out, kind of from what yeah. you're saying. There was no real pathway to win. It was a path for Garcia to get into the primary, through the primary. And it's, a, it's the same dynamic with three candidates carving up 53% of the vote. And one candidate already has half of that, that being Ferguson. And this average of 44% of Republican voters in the primary Garcia had a path to get through the primary, and then, then who knows? That yeah. door's been shut, essentially, now. That door shut. He, he shut it. The he bottom line out. is that I will bet all of my cryptocurrency profits I've made, <laughs> and I will yeah. bet that it's going to be Bob Ferguson and Dave Reichert, and that's pretty much in the bag. 
as much as you can say about politics, it's early, but seriously, could anybody yeah. really penetrate that? Ferguson, as far as I can see, he's going to be a tenacious campaigner and he works hard and he's got a huge fundraising advantage. So he's in now, well, as just you pointed yeah. out it, with the you know uh, top two primary and Riker where he's at name recognition, 35%. I don't see how it could go any other way. That'd be a good bet. As we say, it's a year away. Ferguson is probably, on the Democratic side, he's the most polarizing candidate. He's the least popular candidate among traditional Republican voters. And that that was one of the reasons why Mullet was looking for support from business community and some other traditional Republican constituencies. If, if you're right, you, you bet pays off and it's Ferguson and Riker. You look for a pretty polarized electorate. Well, that's never happened in this state. It'll be interesting to see no, that. No, no, yeah. This will be a first. Right. Now, and the other just quick question here, too, before I let you go, and that is you're looking at the party being run by, you know, the extreme part of the party for the Republicans. And then you look now at having a more moderate candidate coming up. But, for example, he has some appeal to people. He's not as scary as other candidates they've had because he's been pro-environment. I'm talking about Dave Reichard now. Right. He also was one of the only Republicans that voted to appeal that don't ask, don't tell policy, which angered some people on his side of the party. So he has right. some of that there. But still, you know, you look at his voted to defund Planned Parenthood. He's, from what I understand, he's not pro-choice. So ultimately then giving those two, I guess, deficits and big ones that if you're in a state like we are, how can he have any pathway to victory if he does win the Republican primary anyhow? Well, abortion won't be the only issue, but the, the Democrats certainly try to hang that on him. And, uh, you know, he's going to be a Republican, so he's going to have to answer questions about Trump, particularly if Trump is the nominee. So it is difficult road for any Republican. So there you have it again, as it's been going on since 1984. Going to be difficult for a Republican to win. But um, I think the person I got hit the most was uh, Mark Mullet, and he's a Democrat because let's let me go with my thought here is that Ferguson is light years away in terms of the vote count now, the popularity, like 25%, I think Stu said. And for him to close that gap, what he was doing was appealing to the business community, and he was getting some traction there mm -hmm. from some Republicans mm -hmm. because Ferguson, while he's very popular, he doesn't really trend well with business people in the state. So he could have made some inroads. But with Riker coming in, those Republicans are going to go back. Sure. So that really, I think, hurt the Democrat Mark Mullet uh, the most, in my assessment. And then Raul Garcia drops out, but he announced he's going to run against Maria Cantwell. And when she gotcha. runs, I don't know when that is. So anyhow. Can there be a third candidate in the gov gubernatorial race? We have top two president or primary in this okay. state. So it could be two Democrats running against each gotcha. other. It's okay. the top voters. We're, I think, one of five states in the country that have it that way. That'd be interesting. So, And that's happened before. So from politics to some fun facts. Fun facts. Yes. And uh, Turian Jackson sent me these. She sends all these cool little things 
that I don't see anywhere else from uh, the L.A. area and uh, the wife of former broadcaster Keith Jackson. Okay. Anyhow, having said that, here it is. Fun facts. More people live in New York City than in 40 out of 50 states in this country. Wow. Okay. The word Pennsylvania is misspelled on the Liberty Bell. Did not know that. I thought I'd heard that before. It would take more than 400 years to spend a night in all of the Las Vegas hotel rooms. Over 400 years. And a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah. There is enough concrete in the Hoover Dam to build a two-lane highway from San Francisco to New York City. Wow. Boston has the worst drivers in the nation of the 200 largest cities. Kansas City has the best drivers. Hmm, Okay. And I've driven in Boston. It's the worst city I've ever driven in. I haven't driven in all the cities, but it is by far the worst city that I ever drove in. As a matter of fact, I remember I was driving with Marty, my wife, and I was in the middle of the street, and I said, there was a red light. I'm out. I jumped out of the driver's seat. You drive. We went around (laughs) the other side, and she got in and drove. I'd had it. (laughs) I I just thought about that So what was it? that Were they just aggressive drivers or terrible streets? Absolutely. So anyhow, that's some of uh, the fun facts for today. So uh, we'll be coming back. Hey, you're going to have your interview coming up right now with Lori Hardy. So anxious to hear that. Sounds great. Well, I want to welcome a special guest here to Spotlight on Success. I have in studio with me, in person, love it, Lori Hardy. How you doing? Hi. Yeah, good. We work together, but you also do so much. You know, you, you've heard that term side, what is that, side hustle? Mm-hmm. I think you must have five. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. And you succeed at them all. I love your latest podcast, and I wanted to talk about it because on this show in the past, we've talked about kind of reinventing yourself and what do you do maybe after retirement, let's say, um, what are some tips and things like that? So just the mere fact that your podcast is, uh, interrupted act two: reinventing your legacy, uh, that drew my attention. So let's talk about the title, how you came up with it and what the podcast is all about. So many people are not able to retire anymore. Yeah. I'm raising my hand. Yeah. We, we had the 2008 thing. We've had COVID. The rug has been pulled out from under so many people. What I have seen is some people are just like deer in the headlight. They don't know what to do. Some people are like, I am going to use my gifts and talents and all of my experience of all of my years and do something. I just put out a thing on my Facebook and I said, hey, if you have recreated your life in your 50s or 60s and want to talk about it, let me know. And I... So many people have signed up for an interview and the theme I'm seeing men as well as women, but the theme that I'm seeing is when the carpet got pulled out, when they either got really sick or they got COVID or they got laid off, they had to find some self-love. They had to find a way to put themselves first because it's a generation where they have just worked and worked and worked and put everybody first. Hmm. This is the theme of these, the people that I'm interviewing. And once they found self-love, they found what they loved. And now they're living these lives, doing these things that they absolutely love that they couldn't have given themselves permission to do before. That's really interesting. Some of the people you interview, or maybe most of them, Spent a career, let's say, working in a sense for their family or working for the household or working for retirement funds. And suddenly they might have the opportunity to do something for themselves. 
Exactly. I'm a life coach. One of my hustles. <laughs> a lot of people will stay in a job because they need the insurance or they f- have this feeling, I can't just quit my job. They don't really understand you can transition into another industry. People don't want to take a pay cut. But often we see people staying in jobs they hate. And guess what happens? Their health mm. deteriorates. I'm hoping with this podcast that A, people will recognize there's hope and that maybe something they do that they think everybody can do, they'll recognize maybe it's something that's unique in them and they can use it to share their story and help other people. Well, that's wonderful. I wonder too, have you talked to people who have discovered that maybe they don't need to make a major change? Maybe it's just a smaller change that was sort of in front of them all the time. Yes. In fact, the one lady I just spoke with, she's doing the same thing, only she's doing it on her terms. Okay. So she worked in marketing and she was really good at a lot of things and they kept asking more of her. Our generation, the older generation, will do more. The new generation is quiet quitting. They're like, oh, yeah, I'll do it. But they won't. Have you noticed that? Yes. Yeah. Our generation, the boomers, who this is kind of about, it's like, okay, now take that energy and do it for yourself and create your own business where you can help the people you want to help. And somebody said on one of the interviews, I shouldn't be working for the man. I should be working for myself. (laughs) You're a veteran of radio. You've done all sorts of things on radio. You're now also a life coach, which is amazing. We had a chance to chat about that a while back. And it's, it's a fascinating part of your business. As we talk about just audio, podcasts are really interesting because the demographics can be from young to more senior. You see that demographic across, depending on the subject matter, what, what they want to listen to. So I kind of find it interesting that you got boomers listening to it, but you also have Gen Zs listening to podcasts. Talk about the power of podcasting. It really is interesting because... You can listen while you're doing things so you can multitask, whereas with YouTube, you almost have to stop and watch. The thing that I love about podcasting and I teach it is if you speak in a certain way, you can get people to lean in. I noticed a lot of podcasters are talking in a way that because they don't understand the power of radio. I'll just say radio because it's audio. Mm -hmm. We don't talk to the masses. None of us in the business, we always talk to one person. And that's the magic. And when people understand that, there's something just very intimate about a podcast when you feel like you're the only one they're talking to. And so I do traffic reporting. And my whole goal in is that I ask a question, are you on 405 at 520? I want people to say out loud, yes. (laughs) But if I say, hey, you guys, there's something going on, people aren't going to take it personal. But if I ask a question and I make them feel like they're the only one, they're going to answer me yes or no. And I feel like that engages people and it makes them feel seen and heard. And that's what people... People are lonely right now. They are. And that's one of the things I liked about your podcast is the way that you speak to the person you're interviewing. If you were to have a pie chart, I was thinking about this as I was listening to your last podcast, it would seem that 90% of it would be filled with your guests' comments and replies to what you'd ask. I certainly fall victim to this where I just talk, talk, talk too much. So I'm going to stop right now (laughs) and just ask you, how do you do that? You do a wonderful job at it. And why is it so important? It is so important because their story is important. It's not about me, even though it's my podcast. And what I have learned, good interviewers will ask a question, even if they sound really dumb. I think sometimes we're afraid of sounding dumb, so we keep qualifying our question. Mm -hmm. But to ask a question, plus we're also afraid of dead air. And in a podcast, you can edit that out. But to ask the question and then trust that that person 
A, will ask a question if they don't understand it, or B, hopefully it's open-ended enough that it'll help them say things they never thought they would say. Let's talk about some practical things that people can do in their own lives if they're facing this situation in their life with like, you know what, I've done the things I've had to do, now I want to do the things I want to do. Well, how do you get started? I would say hire a coach because what people don't know about coaches is it's all about you. So when you come in, the coach doesn't have an agenda unless they're a consultant. If you are getting like a small business coach and you want to start a business, they're going to tell you how to do it. But if you're trying to find what it is you love, get a coach that will listen and hear your heart and help you connect the dots. And you might be amazed at what you already know you know. Mm -hmm. It seems to me, too, that these are kind of exciting times to have these options. For a lot of us, it's not the days of I worked 40 years, got my pension, and now I'm going to sit or go play golf or whatever. Right. It's kind of exciting. I mean, even though, yeah, I, I am going to be working into my retirement, it's kind of exciting to think of the options. It is. And there, and we have so many. I remember when I wanted to get back in radio, I could barely record anything because we didn't have the ability at home. Mm. Now we can record. We can share our legacy. And that's what I'm really all about is record YouTube, whatever, even if you save it to your phone, because our kids really don't know everything about us. We may think we shared everything, but they don't know. So if we just take the time, tell one story, save it on your phone, do one video, save it on your phone, whether you ever put it anywhere, it'll be found one day and you'll leave a legacy that maybe somebody didn't know that about you. Even though you're just starting this new podcast, you've been on other podcasts and you're a major part of others. What is there now? Six in the can now, as they say, I yes. guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, more each and every month are going to be added. We're talking to Lori Hardy, and her podcast is Interrupted, Act Two, Reinventing Your Legacy. And I have to tell you that the scope and breadth of your guests are amazing. You really talk to different people, but there is a common theme, isn't there? Yeah, there really is. And it's reinventing themselves mm. and what it takes to do that. Just give it a listen, folks. You'll be hooked. You'll be subscribing. (laughs) I've already listened. I just found out about it myself, and I've already listened to two, and I'm on my third uh, because Lori does a great job. Lori, thank you for your time. Thank you. Really appreciate it. And join us next time for an edition of Spotlight on Success, and check out the podcast Interrupted, Act 2, Reinventing Your Legacy. If you're sort of facing that in your life, regardless of your age, I think you're going to get something from it. Check it out. Well, thank you, Eric, for that wonderful interview. Appreciate it. I think uh, there's a lot of great information there, and I uh, just want to tell the audience if there's anything on the show you heard you want to hear more of or you'd like to uh, talk to us about anything, you can call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. Eric, what do you have next week? So true story, went shrimping recently, pulled up an octopus in one of the pots. We released it safely and all that, but... That come to work on that Monday, here's an email in my box. Would you like to interview Dr. David Scheel, a researcher and author of the book, Many Things Under a Rock, The Mysteries of Octopuses? I'm like, heck yeah, I do, because I just, yeah, I just saw. So it's, it's a fascinating interview I had with him about the secret lives of octopuses, and there's so much, who knew? And we'll get to more as to how you stumbled on this interview, which is just as interesting. We have to come back next week to hear come that. back next week. I'm talking to someone from the Alzheimer's Association, I don't know who that is, about the latest breakthroughs in technology. They're trying to run somebody down for me and also caregiving. Mm. I think it's long overdue that we covered that subject. So uh, Voices of Experience airs on Wednesdays at 3 p.m., as you know, on KKNW and Kixie. 
and is rebroadcast on Kixie only on Sundays at 11 a.m. Quote of the week, I believe in those who take the next step as opposed to those focused on the 200th step. Teddy Roosevelt.